what if we started right right away with it? What if we just knocked it out? Welcome to Fade of Mates. Yeah, sure. Let's do it. And we should introduce ourselves and our voices. We should do it real professional. <laughs> Too late, Sarah. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to Faded Mates. <laughs> Wait, that's not professional. That's a that's different like kind of professional. <laughs> Also good. Um, welcome to Faded Mates, everybody. I'm Jen Reads Romance. Joined my my I don't know my partner in crime, trusty cohort. <laughs> yes, there you go. Uh, noble steed, <laughs> Sarah McLean. There you uh, go. I write romances and I read romances. I critique romances and also appear at local bookstores talking about romance. Appear at local. I mean, I do that too. What is that? Sure. I don't know. Here's the part. You talk about your own books. I talk about other people's books. Here's the best part. So I was at this bookstore last night and I was with these other three amazing critics, um, Diego Baez, uh... Walt um, Walton Mumbaya. I'm not sure I'm saying his name correctly. And then Liz Taylor. Oh, from the Chicago Tribune. Yeah, she's amazing. I know Elizabeth Taylor from the Chicago Tribune because a, me- a million years ago when I was a publicist, I used to pitch her stories. Oh. And I always thought, I mean, like, that's a name you don't forget. She wrote a great book about Mayor Daly. If you're at all interested in, like, books about cities, it's called American Pharaoh, and it's amazing. But anyway, at the end, I'm, like, passing out faded mate stickers and buttons. Welcome, new readers. (laughs) And I was totally, like... Who love biographies of Mayor Daly and also romance novels. (laughs) Yeah, and both Walton and Diego were like, we don't have stickers. And I was like, that's okay. Here, would you like one? And then Walton said he would listen to our podcast, and I was like... (gasps) Well, let's make it a good one then. I know. I'm like the pressure I felt now feel under. It was amazing. That was really fun. So we are going to talk about a book that blooded you this week, Sarah. We are. So um, uh, for those of you just joining us, um, because I have a feeling that I, it feels like if Beverly is happy with this, he'll, she'll probably post it to her group and we might get some new listeners. So, oh, yeah. Um, to people who are just joining us because of the book we're reading this week, uh, this season, this is our second season of Faded Mates. Our first season followed the Cressley Cole Immortals After Dark Paranormal series. And we truly believed that it would only be 20 episodes long. <laughs> and um, and we would just do one episode for every book in that series. And then that would be that. And we would all go back to our normal lives. Um, but we really like talking into everybody's ear holes. And so we ended up doing lots of interest, what we call interstitial episodes, um, where we talked about just books we love, the tropes that we love, and why they work. And we recommend a lot of books. And TBR piles across America and the world groan under the weight of our recommendations. <laughs> um, and then when we we got to the end of Immortals After Dark, we decided to do a season two and we decided to do the books that blooded us, by which we mean the books that taught us why romance is amazing, what romance can be as a genre, and uh, what the books themselves can do, how they can really take the cake, yeah, <laughs> so to speak. Um, so Jen and I, at the beginning of this season, each made a list of 10 books we really loved. And then we compared notes, and we have a little bit of overlap. Um, but this book, Beverly Jenkins's Indigo, was probably first two or three books that I put on the list. Um, and I 
love this book for so many reasons. And I really honestly, Jen, feeling like I, I felt like on this reread, having had now having faded mates in my mind always. Right. I had a completely eye-opening read of it, um, in which is kind of remarkable because I've read it probably a hundred times. <laughs> so um yeah. So I'm I'm really grateful that we're doing this because it felt like I mean now I know Beverly and I feel like um it's just a whole new world reading it. Now I this is my first time reading it, but I am I do like the like when's the first time you read it story. You don't have to go into mm-hmm. like great detail. No, I think this one's important too. This this is um, and so I grew up, um, I've talked about this before. I grew up in a suburb of Providence in Rhode Island, kind of between Pro- everything is a suburb of Providence in Rhode Island, but, um, <laughs> it's just in a town called Lincoln, just south of the Massachusetts border. And it's a real white town. There was one black kid in my high school. Yeah. Um, and it was a real, real white town. And the high school shared a parking lot with the public library. And I've told this story before, but I came to romance really through that public library. My sister read them, um, but then she went to college. And so I had to get my fix in a different way. And I did that at the library. And I read, you know, all of the Fabio books and yeah. <laughs> all of the Judith McNaught books. And I mean, when you're when you're a kid who's reading romance novels voraciously and, you know, your mom isn't taking you to the bookstore and you don't have any, like, in, I didn't have an, an allowance. I didn't have, like, yeah. I mean, maybe I had an allowance, but I sure didn't have an allowance that would cover my book budget. <laughs> I still don't. <laughs> and my mom was like, you can read these books, but I'm not buying you a book. I'm not spending, like, hundreds yeah. of dollars a week so you can read a book in two hours, right? <laughs> that is literally what libraries are for, bless. Yeah. So, like, I would leave high school. So there was a, I remember there was the release bus from, you know, it was, this book came out in 1995. So I would have been a junior. Um, and there was the normal bus that went home at like whatever, 220. And then there was the, like the 315 bus that would go. And it was like for quick after school stuff. So I would skip the 220 bus, go to the library and like load up on romance novels and then take the 315 bus home. And, um, I read every book that was in in the romance section of that library, Um, but I found Indigo. I mean, I found Indigo. I was a junior in high school. It was just, it must have been just out, Um, and it was probably in the new romance section. Um, So bless to the Lincoln Public Library for making sure that Indigo was in the new romance section. Um, And I was transformed. I mean, like, and at this point, I've been reading romance for at least four or five years, at least three, three or four years, probably four years. Right. Um, and it was the first romance novel, historical romance novel I had ever read uh, or come across about black characters. Of course, now I know that there's a reason for that. And that reason is that uh, no one had ever done it before. Bev was the first black romance writer to write historical romances about black characters. And I, um, but I'm not sure that registered to me. Mm, interesting. Okay. I don't, now, of course, when I tell the story, I'm like, oh, it, it must have registered to me, but I don't think it did. But what it, what did register to me for the, about this book and what made me a Beverly Jenkins fan, because I then read after, I mean, I've read all of Bev's work. Yeah. Um, is Hester. I mean, mm-hmm. of course, 
Yeah. Anybody who knows like Sarah McClane and like <laughs> anybody who's been following my like books that blooded me list, like knows Hester would ring a bell for me. Sure. Um, and then also for me, this I do think I registered. It was the first time I had ever seen slavery on the page or this the sort of America in slavery on the page and had it be about characters and people and identities rather than a kind of cold analysis of history. Sure, sure. And that, to 16-year-old me, was transformational. And I think it is possible that this book is the first book, first romance I ever read where I had that kind of seed of an idea that sort of germinated that seed of romances doing something yeah bigger that was a long story i know you said don't tell me a long story but like that's no no i'm i think that's why it's important because sometimes the books right sometimes the books just like emotionally speak to you but sometimes you really are like no like that book really like it was it was like a marking point, right? There was like before you and after you. Yeah. And it's funny because, you know, we talk all the time about, I mean, I joke about how my SAT scores were, my SAT verbal was perfect. And it was because of romance novels, right? <laughs> like I I knew all the kings of England because romance novels. Like we learn, romance readers intuitively know, like we're learning so much when we're reading empirically. Yeah. Um, but what have taught me with Indigo and with Night Song and the other, which I all, that's her second book and I adore it. Um, but with all these books, like suddenly this period of American history became vibrant and real. Yeah. And that's because my white high school teachers didn't know how to do it. <laughs> it's however many years later and people still don't know how to do it. Yeah, right? they, did, they didn't know how to make slavery how to teach slavery because it's we've talked about this before too like abhorrent things are hard to it's hard to wrap your head around them and do it justice and also i mean it's 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 a challenge it's as laquette would say it is uncomfortable and like discomfort is where we have to learn but yeah the thing i as a teacher say um and if i've said this before like Eric, you can cut this, but I don't know if I have. So I um, I struggle a little with, like, the way, um, like, we say that about slavery because all my students know what the Holocaust is. They all know, they all come into school, like, knowing, having, like, you know, into seventh grade, having, like, a basic knowledge of that. But they don't know anything about slavery and they don't know anything about lynching. And I've, I noodle around a lot with the idea that it's because... In the Holocaust, we're the good guys, right? Even though that's not true. Because right? you have to face your own, like, evil. Evil, facing what your country has done. And what it's still doing, I think, is a really big part of that. You know what I mean? And so it's not... And, and it's what's really interesting, um, when Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead came out a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. um, I was in a Goodreads group where someone was talking about um, the first chapter, which is just, like really um, unflinching about the violence that slaves were subjected to. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the people in the group was just like, I just thought it was like too much. And someone really was like, yeah, but 
that's how it was. Like, and the right. person was like, come on, really? And this person was like, we live in a country where people used to, like, gather on the town square to watch lynchings and then sell postcards. And this person really did have to kind of have this, like, moment where they're like, oh, my God, I have been mm-hmm. sold the – instead of being – I've been sold the – Gone with the wind slavery narrative, right? All of literature sells the it wasn't really that bad narrative. Well, and let's also not discount the fact that the country itself is so segregated still. Oh, yeah. Like I was a white kid growing up in a white town, you know, like all white school, but for one. Yeah. And so like this, this narrative also in the North Sure. Oh, yeah, of course. So, like, where, of course, we had nothing to do with it, quote. Right. Right? Like, Uh, that's me being facetious, but, like. Only the South is racist. Right. Like, when Northerners aren't racist, (laughs) except, like, like, of course, that's nonsense. Like, but these are hard questions that are, I mean, I do think schools are doing it better. I will say this. I also grew up in Rhode Island, which is heavily Catholic. We had one Jewish kid in our school, too. And. She was the reason why I knew about the Holocaust. Like, I do think, like, there are—I think this is about—I think atrocities perpetuated by Christians and white people tend to be— They just get swept under, yeah. I get it. Like, that's hard parenting to do, to say, like, we did this. Our ancestors did this. We're perpetuating this. Yeah. And, like, I think we're doing it better now, but— yeah, I did not have the same experience about the on the Holocaust. Like that also was a new to you. Yeah. I mean, but I don't know, but I, that was also 1990. It's also it's also hard to like go back to a time when you didn't know things. I mm. guess I would say so here's when I I don't want to like necessarily totally derail this conversation, although it's an interesting one. I have read Beverly Jenkins' like latest books, but I have not read. I've not read Indigo, and I have not read any of the Levesque clan, which I'm now like <gasps> tee these. Tee these <laughs> They're up. so good because um, all the books that come after this yeah. are Hester, Hester, and Galen's children. Oh God! I mean, and that's I will tell you, and I know I've said this before, but in my book club and Fifty Seven Street Books, a woman once pointed out that like her the the heroes and heroines of her contemporaries are like the ancestors of her. I love that so much. Oh God, it's amazing. But this book, I will say, so I, you know, I started reading it. I, you know, I guess like a brief plot overview, right? Like Hester is living in Michigan on her own. She's a young woman. Um, She's in, her aunt has recently been deceased. Uh, She was born into slavery um, from a, in a, a rather remarkable story about um, her father was free and essentially sells himself into slavery to be with the woman he loves. So can I interrupt you yeah. for just one second to say, and I'm going to let you because this is new. It's a new book to you. So I want you to like lead. Um, but that is a true story yeah. that Bev came to when she was doing the research for Indigo. She read a uh, an, she read a biography, an autobiography, and and, it, and the line was, I knew, I once knew a man who sold himself into slavery for love. Yeah. Yeah. And she also said the letters that she wrote, the, the letters yeah. that begin the book, um, came to her, like, in, like, a fugue state. Like, she just, wow. they poured out of her, like, she the people were speaking through her. 
oh my God, my whole body. I just got the shivers. It's yeah. so amazing. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, I feel like that's like the most un- not unbelievable because racism, but you know, we do have now, especially with the internet, and I will put tons of information in show notes, like actual links to like letters the slaves wrote back and forth. And, you know, even though it was illegal for them to read, like people who, who did know how to read and, or who had people write for them. And, you know, we have so much more information that um, stories like this are we're going to hear more and more. Mm-hmm. And I think there's lots of really great American novels that deal with this. I actually went back this week and reread parts of a book from the early 80s called The Cheneysville Incident by um, I think the guy's name is David Bradley. Yes. And he wrote um, a novel about a man in the middle of Pennsylvania trying to figure out what happened to his ancestors who were trying to save slaves. And so this whole time period, I think there's actually lots and lots of books that were written about it. But this book is just magnificent. I've got to tell you, Sarah, I it was like electric. I mean, I I know where (laughs) I kept. I want to tell everybody, I I will sit down with the book and read it straight through. And I put down this book like probably five or six times. Like I would literally get to a chapter and was like, I'm going to close it now because I just want to. Yeah. I want to like have that anticipation. It's and really delicious. Oh, it's God. It's great. And I think that that's that's the magic of it is like, oh, yeah, it feels like. It's just, I mean, it's a perfect, so right from the very start, from that first oh God, page, yes. right, where there's the bang on the floor, like mm-hmm. in the, like she just, it's a debut. How <laughs> is this a debut? We were talking, we were texting the other day, um, Jen and I, and I was saying like, we we're talking about, I don't know, some book. And I was like, look, I, you know, and Jen, of course, is always more critical than I am. <laughs> It's my job, Sarah. And and so she was being critical. And I was like, it's a debut. Like, debuts yeah. are messy. Like, my debut is 127,000 words. And it should be 100,000 words. Like, it's it's they're messy and often they're flabby and there are mistakes in them. And, like, that is not to say that I'm sure there are, you know, things sure, that of course. Bev would change about this book. But, like, it's a debut and it starts in the exact, exact right, right place. place. And it sets the scene in an exact right way. Well, actually, it's not her first book. I, for some reason, I thought it was her first book. But um, Night Song is her first book, which I also adore. And that came out in 1994. Indigo was definitely the first of Bev's books that I read, though. And then I think okay. I immediately... It was one of those situations where, like, it came out in 1996. I just checked the date. So, actually... Okay. And then there was Night Song, and then Vivid, and then Indigo. But Indigo was first. And, I mean... And I think when people talk about Bev, it's one. this is one of those situations where, like, this is the book they talk about. You hear about Indigo a lot. Right. Right. Um, and now we know why. Yeah. So. Oh, it's amazing. Well, and it's just one of those things, too. I mean, it's... You know, we can't keep them all straight. It was a long time ago. <laughs> It's true, but I, I mean, it's, it's for me, this was my, you know, this was my first and, and, and I've loved her ever since. And she tells this magnificent story in these like really remarkable, she chooses, she makes really interesting choices about who she's telling the story about. I want to talk about the fact that like, we see Hester so much more than we see Galen. Like there's so much interesting stuff packed in here and I find it. Like, it's just a great, great read. Oh, God, And yes. I mean, in the years since, I have read 
every Beverly Jenkins book. And there are other magnificent reads in the canon of Jenkins. (laughs) But like this will always be. Hester is, she's like sort of in the pantheon of heroines for me. She essentially is a a conductor on what is essentially the Underground Railroad through Michigan. And this is in the 50s, 1850s. So it's the fugitive slave law is in effect. And this was like a really um, interesting and terrible time in America's history in this like lead up to the Civil War. Because, you know, up until this point, Northerners could just sort of essentially like pretend, okay, yeah, slavery was bad, but it was happening somewhere else. And now, now slavery is something that everyone has to help enforce. And so, and the danger with these slave catchers, I mean, all of this, by the way, and I kind of hate that she has to like show her work in a a bibliography at the end, but you know, the business about- She does that in like almost every one of her books. Well, because people are going to question her and that's terrible, but it's useful. Nobody does research like Bev Jenkins does research. And the whole part about like $10 if you send a slave back and $5 if you acquit them, all of that is true. Mm. And so when what happens is Hester is essentially caring for a man in her basement who has been badly beaten but has gotten away from slave catchers. And she finds out that who he is is sort of like one of the most infamous and famous brave men sort of ferrying slaves to um, safety in the North, the Black Daniel. And, you know, he's rude and... And terrible, but they are in close quarters together, and she and she's taking care of him, and it is oh God, Sarah. It's really great. One of the the brilliant things about this book is she's like innocent, right? She's like young and a, a virgin and all that business, but there is nothing missish about her to use like mm, sort of a no right way. like she is so she knows herself and she knows what she wants and she is determined like on the road to help people and be a part of her community and she's not putting up with the dude who thinks women shouldn't be part of it and she's not putting up with this black you know black daniel telling her that she can't i mean i just from the very beginning, she is this amazing, like, kind of fully formed character. Like, if Beverly Jenkins was Zeus and Hester's, like, Athena, like, popping out of his head, that's how it feels. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's really a fabulous story, in large part because there's also a certain amount of, there's a really remarkable amount of DNA here, like his, like his romance DNA in here. Like, this is an adventure story. Like, mm-hmm. you are dropped into this story like she when so there's this knock on the floor she opens the hatch in the floor and there's a family of slaves there with um a person like another conductor who's led them to safety in her house Mm -hmm. um there's you know wounded daniel galen and then there's this sort of instant sense of like oh shit like we're yeah like it's life or death literally And, like, here we are. Like, there are going to be good guys. There are going to be bad guys. Like, it's a very sort of, like, it's there is a sort of binariness about this story in that it is good versus evil. And so the adventure is so palpable because they it can't not be. They're constantly thinking about, like, how to do this. But at the same time, we don't see the adventure. Yeah. The extra. It's so... It, she's tightened, she's closed the doors that so much 
that you end up feeling like this adventure is happening and they're part of it. But what's really important is this sort of love story. Well, and also, I think the that it's like the human connections that they're making. It, it's an adventure and the risks are worth it because of what it means to Hester and her community and for freedom. So it's like all the human connections are what are prioritized rather mm -hmm. than, you know, like the drama. And that's true kind of throughout, like from beginning to end. I mean, and so, you know, everything about anything that's like kind of adventure is is like toned down so that it can be about people's feelings first. And I think it's just this really remarkable and very wise choice because then the ways that um, Bev shows like the sacrifices that people are making, both personally and politically, like everything has weight. And some of it is just like, there's this one part and I, I don't know if this struck you again, but like, She's feeding him, right? Like, and he's recovering and he's really hungry and he's a big man. And she keeps saying that she's not hungry and he figures out it's because she has been giving him all of her food. She cannot fucking stand him at this point. And she's like, yeah, but he's, he's, I need to feed him. He's in my care. And it's like, honestly, like this wrenching moment where this had even been hidden from us as the readers, like yeah. just right. Like how fully committed she is in every way to helping, to helping slaves stay free, to helping p enslave people free themselves and stay that way. And yes. it, it's just so like, it's such a telling little detail, but I just thought it was really, I thought it was beautiful. Like I, I, I did. Yeah. It's it, because it's rare in any book to find a character who is so has such courage and also has such like purity of heart. Yes. Like there's a sort of, there's something, there's nothing selfish about Hester and somehow she's not intolerable. Do you know what right. I mean? Like, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the like purely selfless characters in literature usually are a little bit boring. Yeah. And I mean, that's not no. the case here, even a little. Because she has her pride, because she has her dignity. Um, you know, the God, the story of her and her childhood friend not knowing what it would mean to have indigo stained hands. I mean, <gasps> oh, my God, that story is oh. so beautiful in large part because it's so it's such an honest way of looking at children too yeah. like again i don't think i'd had i mean i have a six-year-old right and so i i mm. think like i haven't read this since i've had like a, a yeah a person in my house who is young and like has thoughts like this but bev harnesses that sort of the sense of like the girls working with the die right yeah. and looking at them and sort of talking about how they can't wait until their yeah. hands are blue like their mothers or like the, like the women around them like that yeah. will be a symbol of them being big like grown, grown up yeah and when they articulate it the sort of awareness that they have that what they had thought would be a badge of honor is actually one of shame. Yeah. And there's this it's palpable and it's gut-wrenching. I mean and I mean it's just it's remarkable. She does she does 
remarkable. I mean, it's just incredible work. Yeah, because she it is, really is. Yeah. You know, we talked. It shows also that, like, I mean, she is she is a queen of the genre um, yeah. because there aren't many writers who are able to tackle issues this yes. massive and be With able- such a light touch. Oh. Yeah, I mean, and I think this is a conversation, not to derail us, like, away from the book too much, but I think this is a conversation that's happening a lot in romance right now is, like, mm-hmm. how can we tell these powerful stories right. about institutional wrongs? There was a thread from Adriana um, Herrera the other day about how she really was – she was looking for more white uh, writers to – to write historicals about white women aware of their complicity in yeah. these kind of tr- problematic and and structurally incredibly damaging systems colonization and slavery etc and um and i you know my instinct when i looked at it was like where do you how do you how do you tell that story and retain the fantasy right retain the what we call what you and i talk about as the id right that sort of like that that powerful stickiness. Yeah. Bev doesn't have a problem doing it. But nope. she's also the best. Yeah. Well, and you know what, though? I think what it really speaks to, and I think this is what Adriana's books do so well, too. And I talked about American Love Story last night at this bookstore is one of the best romances of the year for this reason is when you are in love with someone who shares a powerful vision of what the world should be like. Yes. Then you and your lover are going to work tirelessly towards making that that dream a reality. Yes. And this is something that I think um this book is is just does really well and and you know I there's so many things I I feel like I could talk about this book probably forever, but I mean, so basically he leaves and it's months before she sees him again. And, you know, and he says, next time you see me, you're going to have to pretend you don't know me Um, is what one of the things I find really fascinating about this book is even though he is, again, like sort of in some ways types to a very like strong kind of possessive, he loves her and wants her kind of male Never once does he say to her, you shouldn't be doing like when you're my wife, you're going to like stop all this. Mm. And and it's not that I really expected that he would, but I it must have been a worry because I remember um, there's a really powerful scene where they save a local woman. Mm-hmm. Right. Hester essentially impersonates her. They go in and she they sort of dress her in Hester clothes and send the woman out to freedom. And then, you know, Hester's like sitting in the jail cell. And this is a remarkably like dangerous moment for her in the book where she's really put herself in danger. And and never once is she. Galen's response to say, you shouldn't have done that. He was worried about her, of course, but he knew full well that he um, he respected it. Well, it's also this awareness of these two characters. I mean, it is similar to Adriana's book in the sense that it's this awareness that like these characters understand that they are servants to a higher power. Yeah. Like there's their job. They are not like happily ever after for them is not only like living in happiness with their love. It's it's the end of slavery. It's the like there are 
there are larger there are larger movements in this book and there are larger movements in these people's lives. But I feel like Bev is writing that small moment in this uh, with this awareness that like it's just one seed. They have bigger things to accomplish and now they will be able to do it with someone who shares that same goal and purpose. And I, it's beautifully done. And they both have really interesting backstories. I mean, even Galen's backstory. I mean, God, when you think she essentially has an entire plot about colorism, about light-skinned mm-hmm. slaves and how they treat people and, Hest, you know, Hester's fear that she will not be treated the same because she's darker. Royalty in his yes. community, like as Galen, not Black Daniel. Yes. They don't know that about him, which is, you know, he's like a literal superhero. No, and can we, can we also talk about, again, how in within the context of romance, larger yeah. romance at the time, she's still writing, you know, she's doing all this and... She, <laughs> She's basically like, hold my beer, everyone. Like, <laughs> because she's still writing, she's writing all these huge, like, movements, like cultural, social right. movements, historical movements. She's tackling an institution of oppression that no one else, like, we've, we read uh, Gentle Rogue, they're running slaves and, like, no oh, one yeah. says anything. No one else is even whispering about. And then on top of it, she's still writing this, like, core alpha like he's he does not understand feelings <laughs> oh my god you got like the part where she like finds him in his carriage and he's newly upholstered at all in indigo velvet but i was like he loves you he's like oh, what i just like blue <laughs> it's like honestly i mean i was just like i'm gonna have to take to my bed for like hours after that because he's so he's like i'm not sure i'm in love with her and i was like yes yes you are of course you are you (laughs) dummy and i just it's so like but she's writing this kind of like real he's so like like rough and gorgeous and like he's like a he's so delicious and he's also a king right we talk about it all the time like he's a king and he's he would be a king even if he didn't even if he weren't a king in louisiana He would be a king by virtue of the work that he does, right? Like, yes, he's a king. Right. And that's what makes him so powerful. It's not just that he's a king by his birthright, but by his actions, Yeah, too. B- born right? and made. Yeah. Right, both. Both, yeah. yeah. I also think, I mean, Bev also writes, Chris, um, she writes uh, contemporaries that are sort of edge into inspirational. They're not, they're sort of on the line. Yeah. Um, and those are the, that's the Blessings series. And... And so when she does things like talks about the fact that he's given the name the Black Daniel because of biblical Daniel, the, you know, Daniel in the lion's den, like these are choices that are made intentionally when she when Bev makes a a biblical reference. She knows again, it's like Sierra Simone. She knows what she's doing. I think the part that was also really fascinating about that, though, is it's such a pragmatic um, it's such a pragmatic like faith, right? That they that they both of have. Course. And in particular, there's a scene where like, um, and we're gonna talk about sex because whoo. Oh um, where Hester goes to a like an older woman and is like, I okay, look, I've got a lot of questions and I need you to answer them for me. Mm-hmm. And it is clear all, it, all it's not a long scene, it's probably a couple sentences that 
this woman is like, okay, I'm ready. I'm going to answer all these questions for you. And so even though there are definitely like social mores that like govern her existence, she does not feel like bound by them. Like, right. She feels like there are going to be choices she gets to make for herself and that's going to totally be okay. And that is, I think, like well within the realm of her like faith and her belief in God. I mean, it's really powerfully done. Yes. It's just, it's a, it's a huge book. It's a big book. Yeah. It's a big book that's doing something on every page. Um, yeah. You know, I also wanted, before we start talking about sex, I want to talk about Galen a little yeah. more because I think Beth is making some really interesting choices here. So she sort of established this king, this king man, right? Yeah. Who is, um, who like, well, first of all, this is basically friends to lovers, this story. They're, they love it. They care. Like, yeah. obviously, in Beverly Jenkins has never written like a couple who does who isn't like at each other's throats a little bit. But like, yeah. they're at each other's throats. And nobody writes like verbal sparring between two people who love each other like Bev. Like, yeah. it feels like marriage before yeah. it, in the sense that like it's two people who like each other and sort also sort of get on each other's nerves right. um, at the beginning. And then and they're always like her heroines always talk back. Like yeah. they're always they always have a quick response. They're always they don't take any shit. It's great. It's great. Yeah, like <laughs> would that we were all yeah a Beverly Jenkins heroine. Um, but then also what she's doing here is she's making really interesting choices because, like I said, it's an adventure novel and we have all this stuff happening kind of outside in the world. Like at one point, right at the end, it's well maybe it's not at the end. It's maybe two thirds the way through, and Galen has to leave because there's a child who needs to be kidnapped right Right. and so they're married they're like they're now they're right after they get married yeah they get married they're like living together right um and so like everything's like she's sort of installed in his house and you know kind of marveling at this world that he lives in lives in right and then he's like i gotta go because i gotta i gotta kidnap this kid who's been left behind yeah and she's like okay well be careful and he leaves and in my head i was like this is one of those moments where authorial choice is really interesting and i sort of noodle i couldn't i was really couldn't stop thinking about we don't go with him no not at all we're never and that's when i realized and i think this was the first read where i really realized that we never go with him right like he goes off and does whatever he's doing and like that's an interesting story. Whatever's happening, yeah, with him is interest is some is something interesting, right? Like he's going to go kidnap a kid, right, and like fight, whatever. Right. Whereas when Hester does what she does, we are with her, right? We are like with seeing at the jail. We're with, we're with her, right? Exactly. But what's interesting is I and I think this is a Beverly Jenkins core story, you know, for lack of a better word to describe it. I think Bev is really interested in women and women's work and mm-hmm. women's work in service of this higher yes. power. Yep. Absolutely. And I think in I think there I, I don't know. I, I don't I don't know because I'm not Bev, but it feels <laughs> to me like making the choice to stay with Hester. And have Hester sort of experience what she's because then then while he's away, there's like 
um, you know, stuff happens. Like right. people sure. come to the house. There's there are, there are fugitive slaves who return who are at the house. There's the shoe, yeah. the miserable, awful, Ugh. like atrocious slave hunter coming. Like there's lots going on. Yeah, and then uh, Galen returns. <laughs> When we get oh. to sex, I'm going to talk about that return scene. <laughs> but anyway, but the point is, like, she could be telling a story. She could have bitten off more than she could chew there, right? Like, yeah. that leaving with Galen would have been a choice that a lot of authors would have made. Right. And suddenly you're telling complete, you're off on a tangent and you can't get yourself back. Yeah. But right. Hester and women in Bev's stories are, are the load, doers. They're load stars, right? Yeah, right. Absolutely. I and I do. I think that part's really interesting because in that way, um, I mean Galen's a great character. I mean, it does have some of the hallmarks as we've been reading some of these nineties books, right? Where it it's like within a chapter we're switching back and forth, like paragraph by paragraph or sentence by sentence into one or the other's point of view, right? Like so we're sort of seeing like that as being, you know, that technique being used. But for the most part, it's it is Hester herself that is really the as you said, like the star of this and also the one who, um, I, you know, she is growing in so many ways in this book. It's like, you know, she always knew who she was as as a as like a conductor on the railroad. Right. As some as as a person in the town. But like who she is as a woman and who she is as someone who has her own like desires and needs both like sort of curiosity wise. I mean, you know, we really get the sense that she like and Galen love talking to each other, that they, this right, is my thing. They adore yeah, each other. They, right. And that she was, you know, when he says you were going to give yourself up to this like passionless marriage. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing is, is like, she just didn't realize because, because I think she'd seen her aunt um, sort of, quietly never getting involved with this man she was in love with her whole life, right? Mm-hmm. There was a sense that this could be, like, a happy life for her. And it, it she wouldn't have been miserable, but that with Galen, it's just blowing the doors off into a different yeah. reality. Well, this is the thing, right? Like, I think what Bev is saying in this and in so many of her other books, she's saying yeah. women are central. The w- women's lives don't exist in service of men. Yeah. They exist in they exist to be and work and do at a larger level. But with the right man, yeah, they can really have it all. And you know what? <laughs> I want to have it all. And like and this is the thing I do think I think that Beverly Jenkins with Indigo and all of her other books, um, but especially in the 90s, um, you know, Beverly, Lisa Kleypas, and some other people in historicals were writing heroines who worked. Yeah. Who had jobs or purpose, mm-hmm. or and they, they were people who, like, who would be fine on their own. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's something really powerful i think that also like tackled for you know 15 year old me when i read this book for the first time mm-hmm. like i think that really felt like 
something important. Yeah, it is important. It's still important. And I think that's the part about the book that I really, that she never loses her purpose. Can we talk a little bit about her like ex-fiance and the, you know, the the woman who ends up being like kind of no good, like the end of the plot get it's, you know, it's really interesting. It's plotty. It's plotty. I I don't think it's bad. I think you need a little bit of plot. No, I think remember we were talking the other day. What we were talking about Sierra and you were saying like at the end there's this like external thing and it like yeah. comes in to tie everything up. And you didn't love it. And I think and I said then it's hard yeah. to tie it all up emotionally. Like sure. you need a inflection point. Yeah. And sometimes plot is where that comes from. Where that comes from. Yeah. I think the other thing that's really interesting about this is this sense of, um, you know, this being like a like a foil in some ways, but like this like negative one where when you make the right choice and you and you meet the person who you have a like a shared like she and Galen have a shared purpose, a common purpose that makes both of them better. But her ex, I can't remember his name, Mr. Terrible, and his new wife are the opposite, right? He thought he found someone who really cared about him the same way, but instead she was working at like at cross purposes with him and he didn't even realize that and she like steers him wrong. And I don't think it's to, I don't want to excuse like sort of that, his terribleness to her, but I thought it was just like a really interesting commentary. And, you know, frankly, in our lives, I'm sure we've had that where, you know, I, I say that to people all the time. I'm like, the reason I... I think Daryl is like a great husband for me as I can easily and list the 800 ways he's made me stronger and better. And the people who I sort of worry about are the people whose marriages make them worse, more divisive, more petty, like sure. harder. Yeah. And I think that the that in that way, that pairing, it doesn't really feel it worked for me at like that level, right? Like I didn't actually have a problem with it all coming in. Cause I was like, it's showing me something really important about what happens when you pick the right person versus when you pick yeah. the wrong person. Yeah. So. And I think again, it's about, I mean, what Bev's books teach readers, women is, you know, you don't, you don't compromise on that. Like there's a, there's the great moment where she says, I'm not marrying you. And he's like, um, he's like, no, yeah, you are. And she's like, she's like, she's basically like, you're a king. Why would you marry me? Why would you marry me? Yeah. And he's like, well, certainly not for your obedience. Right. Like, and there's just these moments where they're perfect little yeah. sparkling jewels of these two people who are just right for each other. Like, yeah. at the end of this book, you feel a deep satisfaction that oh, like god yes the stars are in line and like everything is going to be okay and i want to buy it for like everyone i know that's that like is, it's one of those books yeah well because also let's let's not forget the fact that like it works for readers in and out of the genre because yeah. of you know interestingly two weeks ago we talked about lord of scoundrels right and we yes. and i said it works for readers in and out of the genre this works for readers in and out of the genre in a different way, right? Like, this is a rollicking good story in in and out of the genre. Yeah, absolutely. And I would just say one more thing about sort of that external conflict part. Um, yeah. 
at the end, you know, it's inevitable that Hester is going to really have this run in with Shu, this terrible slave catcher. I mean, she puts the gun on the table, chapter at one. At the very beginning. Like, we yeah. knew it was going to happen. Um, but you know what I really ended up liking about this scene is that her... It's again, it's like an emotional journey. Like Hester never doubts for a second that Galen is going to come and find her and get her. And it really worked for me to not have it be like sort of a big, right? Like the payoff of that moment is emotional rather than mm-hmm. like, again, like it's like the adventure part gets like pushed down so that the emotional weight of the scene, the emotional weight of this journey and of her you know, of Hester really knowing, like never having any doubt. That is the part that's like just really emotionally rewarding. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I also want to, this is sort of a, a little extra satellite thing that I want to just make sure I say is Jeanette, the character who Galen was supposed to marry, the kind oh, of yeah. like as children right. they had been betrothed. Yes. You know, it was one of those moments where, again, you sort of see how Bev is on a different path than other writers. Like, everyone and their mother was writing in the 90s, like, the evil other woman who, yes. like, is bitter and mean. Oh, yeah. And Jeanette is not that. Jeanette is not like, at all. you know what? He would have hated being married to me, and it would have made our relationship terrible, and I like yeah. him too much, and yeah. I'm so glad you're together. And that's yeah. really great. It was really great. Um, can we talk about how hot this book is? Uh, yeah. Okay. I mean, what? I sort of like, I guess I had sort of forgot. I don't know if I'd forgot. I mean, I couldn't have possibly forgotten it. I've read it a thousand times. But like, this okay. time on the reread, I was like, they do it a lot. And can I just say this man <laughs> is a fucking hero to all of Romancelandia. He makes her, like, they have sex at least three or four times where he is just getting her off. Yep. This and is it, for you. He says it at one point. Like, this is for this you. This is for you. And I was like, sir, thank you. <laughs> you thank you receive for your the medal of, <laughs> medal of and romance. She, and you know what's great about it is she doesn't, and of course, because she's so innocent, she doesn't even know. Yeah. Right? Like, we as readers are like, ooh, this man is, but there's none of that. Like, he is just really all there for yeah. her. And it is super hot. I mean, God, you guys, if you're into carriage sex, that indigo velvet oh, gets yeah. a workout, right? Yep. <laughs> and he's like, I've been waiting for this. And I was I like, I mean, there's a Me whole too. lot of oral in this book. And oh, it's God. like, on the page, it's not like early 90s oral where, like, you're no. sort of picking through the, like, <laughs> the the euphemisms to figure out what the hell's going on like it's straight up oral i'm for it (laughs) it is it was amazing and you know what else so and this is what i wanted to say there's like a scene and i think it's the same this the scene in the bath yeah oh except that bath scene he's so gross Okay. Get out of there. I'm like, they're both in this dirty water. Get out of it. He took a pre-bath and then the bath. Like, it was all, I felt fine with it. You know, here's the thing I was thinking about a lot, though, which is it's also a real, I mean, yeah, it's hot, okay? And I'm all for that. We all know. But it's also a real masterclass in how good sex scenes are about intimacy, mm-hmm. not just physical pleasure. Yes. And the way in which it is clear that they are like that, I don't know, it's just really beautiful. I mean, and it just, it's going to sound goofy, but like, you know, there's a part where he like just like reaches in and touches her and it's, and it's not like, cause he wants to like get her off. It's cause he loves her the way she feels, how beautiful she is, her skin, her, her, like, you know, like the, the, 
her person, right? Her body. And yeah. it's just so like, it's both sexy, but it's intimate and it's sensual. And I feel like there's nothing, there's nothing as sexy as it is. And as much as they are doing it, it is <laughs> never, it's never mechanical. No. So weirdly, we were supposed to record this episode yesterday and uh, I I had a very limited window of time to record and my phone rang like 30 seconds before we started recording and it was Bev on the phone. And I was like, talk to her. Was real weird. I was like, why is Beverly Jenkins calling me? Is just does she have my is my house wired? Like, and I like, and we talked for a second, and then I was like, Bev, your ears must have been ringing. I was about, I'm about to do a podcast about Indigo, and then I said, like, is there anything you want to say? Yeah. And she was like, I just want to tell everybody. She's like, you know, I don't. She's heard me talk about Indigo before. She knows it's one of my favorite books. And she was like, no, I don't. And then she goes, you know, just tell everybody it's still one of my favorites, and it. It um it spawned the uh, Detroit series because mm-hmm. all of Hester's Hester and Galen's children have books. Um, so heads up, everyone, you can go read those yeah. and we'll put them in show notes. Um, and then and then I was like, well, can we talk about the fact that it's real hot? And she was <laughs> like, I was like Beverly Jenkins, and she laughed. And if you've never heard Bev laugh, like it's this smoky, like it's this beautiful, <laughs> wonderful laugh. And she laughed and she was like, well, you know, that's how we did it in those days. <laughs> And I laughed and I was like, I couldn't believe how many times they do it. And she was like, Sarah, back then, if you didn't have 10 pages, 10 page sex scenes, you weren't doing it right. I was like, all right. (laughs) Take take note, everybody. I mean, they do it. It's so funny because now people are like, if I have more than four sex scenes, like, is it erotica? Like, Hester and Galen do it like 83 times in this book. (laughs) Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. Hey, can we also talk about... It's sort of like a a weird left turn off sex, but no, it's okay. I mean, but it's lady parts. I there's a moment where she talks about her period with him. <gasps> yes, and I now wish that we talked about this during the bodily autonomy episode. Yeah, um, because it's really awesome. Like she's like, yes, it is. I am. I'm having my period, and he's like, cool. <laughs> and in her mind, <laughs> right. she's like wives would never talk about this but he there's this yes. play of like i want you to be my wife and my mistress yes right through the whole the and i love it's, it's such a like sexy through line yes. um between them but and she's like but a mistress probably would say something so i'm gonna say i'm gonna it. say it and she says it and he's taken aback too but he's like all right i'm gonna roll with this yeah. and there's this wonderful it's it's awesome and it's really interesting because it marries itself with at the beginning when he's first unconscious in her house. Right. He, he he wakes up and she's like there and he basically says like, where can I pee? Yes. And she's like, well, there's a chamber pot in the corner. And he's basically like, I'm not doing, doing that. that in front of you. Yeah. And and like there's a play on like. Oh, well, maybe it's because he doesn't because his penis is too big or something. But it's really <laughs> but like you get the sense that like, no, it's actually that he's on. He doesn't want to. Yeah, he's uncomfortable. Right. And so, like, there's this sense of, like, their bodies being, like, this kind of, at the beginning, this kind of, like, awkward, like, fear of 
showing too much of yourself or like showing yeah. a side of yourself that like might be less attractive and then like by the time we get to like saying like I'm I have my period like my god I don't always say to my husband like yes, oh I have my right. period like it's a real intimate yeah thing of course right to talk about that it. the trust that she has in him in every way I mean like the part where like you know it's like there's this really delicious moment earlier in the book where he's still there right and he she shows him all of the like secret passageways in her house yeah and it's like throughout the whole book it's it's them showing each other well yeah it's like and this sense of like the unpeeling of their personalities at one point and Jeanette sort of puts a button on it at the end when she says to Hester like do you know where he goes when he goes away yeah and Hester obviously doesn't say anything. She doesn't give it up. But it's clear to Jeanette that she does. Yes. Know. And she says, like, that's how I know he was he's, right. F- he's right for you and not right for me. Yeah. That he trusts you enough to show you. And, I mean, it's just really powerful. I mean, and I think yeah. I kept thinking while I was reading it that, you know, relationships are so much about we've talked about this before there's so much about power and there's so much about trust and about communication and like it's so hard it's it's work every day of a relationship to like do that right and -hmm. like do that with respect and thought and care and love and it's just so it's just so right here yeah it's like this is is a marriage that like it's a textbook marriage it's yeah, exactly it's really what beautiful. you should want your marriage to be. There's this one part, and I and I I want to talk about one of the things I really also loved about the book is how even after they're married and they're happy, the threats from outside, those external threats, because they still live in a time when slavery is legal and they still live in a time where despite their paperwork, one of them could be captured and sold into slavery. Something that I think people yes. don't realize happened all the time, right? Like Robert E. Lee's army, when they came up to Gettysburg, like took free black people and sent them back south to slavery. And so this idea that they were never, you know, despite this is really, um, it's always this like really, it's in, it's part of their romance. It's not anything that's ever Mm-mm. washed away. And there's this really beautiful part where he basically says to her, um, you know, he was, he's like, look, you know, you're my wife and, you know, we're married now and I'm not going to have, you know, I'm not going to let anything happen to you. And she says to him, sometimes promises made by people like you and me are nearly impossible to keep. And it's this beautiful moment where he is like, yeah, but we're going to, if that's the case, then we're going to run together. And I, I'm ready for that if you are. And it means that we're probably going to have to kill him. Um, you know what I mean? We're going to, that might be what it means. And instead of her kind of being like, oh, I don't know about that or whatever. Right. He, she's like, I hope not, but maybe, maybe it is. And mm-hmm. there's this sense of, um, this just being like now that they have each other, the cost on that, the cost on them is going to be shared, mm. right? The, I don't know, like yeah, it's burden sharing, yeah. the burden sharing, and and they like they hold each other, and I guess I should tell you what it's, and to me it's like really one of the, it's the end of chapter twenty that this scene happens, and I think it's why, to me, it's like the power of this book is just in its. It's insistence 
that, and we talk about this a lot for women, right? But, you know, for these, for, for black characters at this time, for anybody who, and we talk about this about romance, for anyone who is marginalized, right? To question their ability to just like have a happily ever after it, this is the scene where it's like, well, have you read Indigo? Because here are people who know, know what's promised happiness. But if you were together and you, despite what the world might do to you, you will have this sense of like, we're, we're in this together, right? We're going to, we're fighting together. And I, I don't know. I just think that it, it really spoke to me. I don't know. I just was really beautiful. Like this book is really pretty perfect. Well, because it does what we've been saying all season, what we've been saying for two seasons and for longer, like it does that work of telling a story within a story about a life and a time and a world that still exists in its weird way. And it, it does such important work, capital W. And it's one. I mean, there are uh, there are a handful of books that I can point to that that I sort of think I feel are important books. Yeah, and this is one of them. You know, like there are a lot of romance novels that I adore, but there are many, many fewer that I find important that I right. wish I could hand to everybody and say, like, this is the work romance can do. Absolutely, you know. Um, yeah, it's magnificent. So I want to talk, um, I want to do a couple things. One, I want to say, uh, Bev's future books. I mean, what, do you want to talk about Forbidden? Oh, yeah. it's your favorite? Forbidden is my favorite, yeah. Forbidden was going to be on Jen's list, but I made her read Indigo. Uh, So that you know, if the list included any, if any book that was not, that the other person hadn't read made the list. Right, exactly. Um, Forbidden is, oh, you know what? It's really interesting. And I was thinking about this. I, I, um, I cannot remember this like movie, but I remember as a kid, like uh, before I read romance, like maybe not middle schoolish, watching a movie about a woman who was passing and finding it just like fascinating, like really like being like, wait, why would you have to do that? Like I was, you know, I also grew up in a town that was like all white people and just really yep. segregated. And, you know, I had no idea what was going on. And I just remember like really feeling like at that moment that there were like the magnitude of all the things I did not know and understand. And, you know, and and I and I think that for so Forbidden is part of her most recent kind of complete series. I think it's called the Old West series. And it's the first book uh, about a woman who essentially heads out West and, you know, she is going to, you know, kind of find her destiny, like similar issues. And she falls in love with a man who she thinks is like, well, she, you know, a white man in the town and he is so into her. And she's like, why would I want to get with this white man? (laughs) Like essentially. And, and it's, and, you know, she's like, I'm not going to do that. That's not who I am. And it, and it turns out he's passing. And the thing about the book that I thought was really so well done is it shows like you're, People pass for like reasons, right? But there's also a price for what they leave behind in the community, like the black community that that like loves would love and nurture them. And 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 it's a really fascinating, like fascinating book. And I really loved like it's probably 
I don't know if now I'm like, well, now there's competition, but it has, it had been my favorite Beverly Jenkins book before. And I just think it's, it's, you're well, you know, ride the Beverly Jenkins train. You're going to get on and not want to get right back off. Right. It's true. (laughs) It's true. Um, Forbidden is, uh, has been optioned by Sony Pictures. That's right. For a television show. So yay for that. More romance on film. Beverly Jenkins on film. Um, Bev also has a movie that everybody can watch. We'll put links in the show notes. What's it called? Deadly Sexy. Yeah, one of her, from one of her contemporaries. contemporaries. She writes romantic suspense. She writes a lot, man. She writes romantic suspense. She writes historical. She writes um, these kind of contemporary, small town, uh, almost inspirationals. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, she's amazing. So I wanted to talk about that. And then, um, shit, I had another thing. I mean, I just think when you read a book like this, it's just like, Hard to even say, like, what's so great about yeah. it is just amazing. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that I made you read it. <laughs> I'm glad you made me read it, too. I remember the first time I ever met Bev, I was at the Atlanta RWA, and I got out of a car, and it was, I mean, I was a baby. I was, it was maybe <laughs> my second or third RWA, and I got out of the car, and I was walking into the hotel, and I saw this woman standing, like, to the side of a door, and um, she's all alone. And I looked at her and I was like, are you Beverly Jenkins? And she was <laughs> like, I did that thing that people do at RWA. <laughs> and she was so kind. And I was like, oh, my God, I love your book so much. And Indigo and Hester. And she was, I like blathered into her face. And then since then, we've become friendly because I have such, as you all know, such a like fascination with the history of the genre. And oh yeah, she must be a Bev treasure is a trove historical, of knowledge. Like, yeah. Cornerstone, like she's able to. She she has been so when I when we worked on the Rita ceremony, she was so amazingly helpful in getting in in sort of helping us set straight the timeline because yeah, I'm um, sure you know. But what's fascinating, and this is something that I wanted to say that I I think is important to say within the context of how did I come to Bev, um. You know, there were a lot of other black writers writing at the time. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there was Sandra Kitt and um, Brenda Jackson and um, Elsie Washington had sort of started at right. Harlequin in the 80s. Um, and, you know, Vivian Stevens had edited that sort of first class of Harlequins. Um, and we don't talk about those early authors as much as we should. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Well, and uh, it's really interesting. I've seen... Miss Bev talked quite a few times, and one of my favorites was I went down and saw her at a library that's, um, I live on the south side of Chicago, but it was like further south than me at like a big regional library center. And, you know, it was like sort of all, a lot of her fans, people who clearly, like, it was great. At one point, Bev was like, you know, the bookware, blah, blah, blah. And someone like shouts out the name for her, right? She was like, I don't remember. But, um, you know, it was really clear to me at that point that you know, she had um, both a really, like, warm and friendly mm-hmm. and, and like, convivial relationship with her readers who, like, obviously love and adore her books. But also that she talks – every time I've seen her, she talks about who came before her. Mm-hmm. And it is really um, – it's just great to, like, read this book and – and see someone who really um, loves loves romance and loves the genre and has like, I mean, I I'm reading this book many many years after you and still was like, 
Oh, it's so good. <laughs> yeah. It's really, you guys, it's a great read. If you're looking for something over the holidays, yeah, this is the read. I mean, it's just so fun and sexy and emotional and also, like, I feel like we spend so much of this episode talking about, like, serious stuff. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. But this book is so fun. Um, I mean, and, like, the banter's really funny, and at one point they're at a funeral, and they're sort <laughs> of, like, speaking ill of the dead, but in a way that's, like, really funny, and, like, a joke gets made about, like, someone turning in their grave that had me literally laughing out loud. <laughs> and I think that that's the part, like, it's, like, that, the, the, it's, like, snappy where it needs to be snappy and tight where it needs to be tight and tender where it needs to be tender. And, you know, like, yeah, thinking about this as being someone's an early book by someone, right. Yeah. It's just shocking that it's like so amazingly perfect. Yeah. All right. What's next, Jen? Uh, okay. So wait, so this is coming out. This is coming out. We've got uh, an interstitial next week. Um, oh no! Which, it's like the AMA, another AMA part two. I think. Wait, is that next this. week? That we're we're not doing our special uh, pegging cabal episode next week? Yeah, we still have to re-record it though. All right. Well, what what day is it? Right, it's going to be like the tenth. This is going to be the tenth, and then it'll be yeah. the seventeenth. The seventeenth is the second AMA. The okay. week after is Christmas. So it's Christmas. So we're going to have a short episode on Christmas. It'll be ten minutes long. Yeah, both of it is for real 10 minutes long. Um, we're going to recommend a couple of quick holiday romances for you and to then, tide you through to right. New Year's. January 1st, New Year's, will be Born in Ice by Nora Roberts. which the queen is book, herself. Yes, a book that blooded <laughs> me. And then the Peg and Cabal will get their interstitial in early January. Yes, That's we promise. We know. Out. We recorded a whole one. <laughs> we had some problems. We're recording it again. It's exciting. It is. Um, here's a fun thing that happened last week. We posted last week the the call at the end of the podcast was cut off for some of you. We're gonna re. We're gonna put it in at the end of this episode too. It's worth what listening all the way through because it's yeah. hilarious. But holiday PSA: Don't call us while, <laughs> while you're driving. driving. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you should call us. If you want to tell us about the book that blooded you, you can call us at 646-450-3766. And that's the only place you'll actually get that telephone number. That's right. You can buy swag from my best friend Kelly at my shop at jenreadsromance.com. And then Sarah has an amazing line of t-shirts and other swag from a Brooklyn artist named Jordan Denae. Jordan, Jordan Denae. Okay. And uh, Jordan, you will find Jordan. Uh, we'll put links in. And there are two shirts, two things available now, many more to come. Hopefully a faded mate shirt to come in the new year. Fun. All right. Have a great week, everybody. And we'll see you next time on Bye. Faded Mates. Okay. Hi, my name is Molly. Um, I think my Twitter handle is at Molly Mees or Mees Nuts. Um, we've talked about stuff like this before. So it's funny, as soon as you guys put up the voicemail, I was really excited, and I was trying to think of, like, what books that I haven't read in a really, really, really long time that I just, I, I have, like, 1,500 books on my Kindle, and that's not including the thousands that are probably buried in my parents' house somewhere. Like, what are the titles of some that I can think of? 
almost immediately out of that. And the first one, which is funny because you immediately started talking about the Bridgertons after that, was, I think it's called When He Was Wicked, obviously by Julia Quinn, um, and it's Michael Sterling is the guy, and Francesca, who was married to his brother, which is, you know, interesting, but for whatever reason, he's, I wouldn't call him a cinnamon roll, but I think that there's a lot of cinnamon roll qualities there, like he's been in love with her for a few years and years and years, and went and took himself away, because obviously she was married to his brother. Um, I just have this recollection of it being just really wonderful, and a little bit more risque, I guess, maybe, than the rest of the uh, Bridgerton books, because... She's marrying her uh, dead husband's brother. So anyway, um, another one is a really old, I think it's Susan Elizabeth Phillips. I'm not sure. I'll have to look at them. Um, maybe I'll call back and tell you. But it's called Truly Madly Yours. I couldn't tell you why. I really haven't read it in years. I'm actually... Woo! Hi, this is Molly Lee or Molly again. I'm okay. I was calling while I was driving, and there was a brick in the road that I didn't see because I was on the phone. Anyways, um, I just wanted to say thank you guys, and I really enjoyed this podcast.